The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The idea that the Prime Minister saying his plan to stop the boats was starting to work is ludicrous. Four. Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak seem very much a sort of goody two-shoes by the Treasury and the policy establishment. Three. Unless the UK escapes today's low-growth, high-spending, high-tax trap, we're heading for a major economic crisis. And I think it's a bit of a generational thing. I think the young people of today don't realise how women have had to fight for their rights. They don't realise what they're giving away. One. We have lift off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The government's small boats bill has suffered a series of defeats in the House of Lords as illegal channel crossings last month set a new record. Ministers want to ensure those attempting to enter the UK unlawfully are deported to a third country, such as Rwanda, where asylum claims can be processed and applications assessed. The Lords and Commons are engaged in parliamentary ping-pong as peers try to dilute reforms designed to stem the latest wave of illegal immigration into Britain. It's an issue you covered this week, Alison, by telling the story of a much-loved landmark hotel in your native Llanetli. <laughs> the link to that column is in the show notes to this episode. Meanwhile, former Prime Minister Liz Truss, blamed by some for trashing the economy last autumn, has just launched her growth commission of leading economists to try to work out why UK economic policy is failing to improve living standards. Rishi Sunak is unlikely to be enthused. But let's start co-pilot by discussing the man we can't name, the BBC <laughs> presenter, in broad in allegations about inappropriate behaviour towards a 17-year-old, but who remains in the shadows. Are the papers and broadcasters over-focused on this story? Is this yet more media navel-gazing? Or should we indeed be jumping up and down about what could be a sex scandal, even though we are still very much in the stage of allegations, claim and counterclaim? Yeah, I think we should be talking about it, although it's excruciating seeing the BBC News night after night covering their colleague. So, yeah, this unnamed BBC presenter stands accused of, I mean, it's multiplying things now, Liam. So originally paying a teenager for lewd photos uh, alleged to have transferred £35,000 to meet this 23-year-old and then, again, more more things coming out, sending messages to another teenager and so on. So it's got to that stage, Liam, hasn't it, where more revelations every day. The stories are coming from the sun. The presenters' defenders are claiming this is an invasion of privacy and he has done nothing wrong. But it is now uh, my view, which I took in my column, actually, was that it really does matter whether what they did, I'm sure his team of lawyers, they're trying desperately not to reveal the name because once the name is out, as we saw with the Philip Schofield case, then it really is curtains for the career. But the issue really is not just whether this person, whether it was illegal, it's whether you want a mainstream BBC figure. What would the viewers make of the mainstream BBC figure paying a younger person £35,000 for lewd pictures? My own view is that most BBC licence fares would not be impressed at all. I think this is a story about the sort of cult of TV presenters. I speak as a sort of, you know, sometime TV presenter myself. 
when you are a TV presenter, you get noticed a lot in the street. You become a public figure. People feel as if they know you because you're in the corner of their living room, evening in and evening out. And yet these are people who you know, have private lives and all the rest of it, private lives which will obviously be subject to scrutiny, particularly when they are paid for by the taxpayer. I mean, I must say I agreed with a lot of your column. I do think it's completely unsustainable for the BBC to go on with this kind of a martyr, the, the madness of everyone in broadcasting yeah, house yeah. and everyone across the British media knowing who this person is and yet we can't name him. It does seem to be doing serious damage to the BBC as a whole. If this person is innocent, then they should proclaim their their innocence. It belies an absolute lack of understanding of how the news works to think that you can say nothing in a situation like this. I do think that the media is going on about it a bit much. I would say that as a kind of economics and, and, and business person. But I do agree with you, Alison. I think it raises major issues about how our national broadcaster is managed internally. And also it raises issues about the kind of overmighty nature of a lot of these TV presenters who are paid huge amounts of money, mm. in many cases, literally to read out loud for a living. These people barely write their own you know, little cues. <laughs> and yet they're paid hundreds of thousands of pounds from taxpayers when they would do the job for much, much, much less because the public profile they get from the job gives them all kinds of lucrative opportunities to open supermarkets and, and give after-dinner speeches and so on. The parents of this young person who's made the allegations against the BBC presenter, they apparently complained to the BBC back in May. And it's only since the sun started kicking up rough that they've jumped into action at all. Just so listeners know, Liam, I've been made aware through several people of of another prominent BBC presenter who has behaved in the most creepy and loathsome manner to young women. And I'm going to be writing a letter to Tim Davey with the name and the details of the allegations. And we'll see what comes from that. Because I, when I see this person's face leering out of my screen, I feel absolute fury. Yet I know of two young women where he has behaved towards them in a really disgusting manner. And I think we do see, you know, you've worked in broadcasting. Not all broadcasters are like this, but television has the power to magnify the ego and to make people feel that normal standards no longer apply to them. And they certainly do, and they particularly do in the national broadcaster, you know, where people treat them with great respect. And as you say, they get a lot of public money. And talking of absolute fury, co-pilot uncharacteristically your, your <laughs> latest telegraph column showed a little bit of a, a bit of anger a bit of ranty pants as you often say the name of <laughs> one of your favorite whatsapp groups that you're part of yes i was really struck by your piece on clinically tell us about the hotel that you know from childhood a hotel that your welsh mother knows well what it means to the local community what's happened to it now and how local people feel. Well, congratulations on the pronunciation, boyo. <laughs> Get that tongue up in the roof of your mouth. I watched Ivor the Engine as a kid. Llanelli, Llanelli Bach. It's in my, I suppose you can call it my hometown. It's called the Stradi Park Hotel and Spa. Look, 
I love Llanelli, but it's it's a poor town, Liam. Like lots of uh, part in lots of parts of the country, it's suffered in post industrialization. It, it's not quite the splendid place it was when Michael Howard, the former Tory leader's mother, had Howard's the women's outfitters there. It was, a, it was a fabulous town then. It's fallen on hard times. And he went to Llanelli Grammar School, didn't he? He went to Llanelli Grammar School, as did my parents, which was a fantastic educational institution, which sent lots of children from poor homes up to Oxford and Cambridge and to some of the great Russell Group universities as well. Now, again, that's no longer the situation under Welsh Labour approach to education. But yes, the Stradley Park Hotel, delightful place set into a hillside with beautiful views of the Gower Peninsula. It's a treat place, Liam, for like my mother, if she had a birthday, would go to a friend's 80th birthday afternoon tea anniversary dinners. Also, the visiting rugby stars, the All Blacks, the Springboks have stayed at Stradley Park when they come to play. The Scarlets. The Scarlets, absolutely. But all the events at Stradley Park have been cancelled, including weddings, birthday celebrations, and 95 members of staff have been made redundant and that's in order so the hotel can be converted into a housing facility for 241 asylum seekers. Just to give listeners an idea, Furnace, which is the tiny village on the outskirts of Llanelli, where the Stradley Park Hotel is located, has a population of between 350 and 400. So you would be increasing the population of Furnace by over 50% if you let the illegal migrants stroke asylum seekers move in. Now, local people are outraged, Liam. I would say that the people, my people in South West Wales, they're they're generally quite quiet, good-humoured and very law-abiding. But this attack on their hotel has pushed them into mounting a blockade outside the hotel, at least 250 people outside the hotel four lorry loads of Home Office approved beds still waiting to be delivered to the hotel, which was supposed to start receiving the migrants on the 3rd of July. A couple of people have been arrested on the picket line and Carmarthenshire County Council lost its bid this week for a High Court injunction to temporarily block plans to use the 77-bedroom Stradley Park as an asylum hotel, because the council was insisting that this would mean a material change of use from hotel to hostel, which I think we can all agree on. Now, I absolutely share the local sense of fury and disbelief, but these things are happening all around the country, Liam. But let's just think that locals who would save up to have a top-notch Sunday lunch at the Stradley Park Hotel are supposed to watch as men, mainly young single men, who have never paid a penny into our system, are put up in a four-star hotel that is the height of aspiration for an ordinary Welsh family. It's bloody ridiculous and it's totally insulting and I am disgusted with our government. My disgust with our government grows by the day. I must say, Alison, your portrayal of what's happening at Stradley Park in Clannathalie will be uh, echoed in many other parts of the country. Mm. I live pretty near to Wethersfield in rural North Essex, a tiny town. It's barely got one shop. It has got a ex-RAF base, which is now becoming a place to house asylum seekers and illegal migrants. And that's going to be really tough on the local community because there's literally nowhere for these people to go. They can walk to other 
towns where there are maybe the odd pub, the odd shop. But again, that's miles and miles along country lanes without pavements. I worry about fatalities. I worry about people being hurt, being in rural locations and wandering around on unfamiliar roads at night where there are no street lamps. I I genuinely do. And it strikes me, though, that the government is going to press ahead with this small boats agenda. They are voting down those Lords' amendments, which I mentioned at the top of the show. Mm. The legislation will be diluted to some extent, but I do think it will get through in some way, shape or form if the government can get rid of the Lords' wrecking amendments. And we should say that repeated opinion polls show whatever a lot of media commentators say, that the majority of the public do want some kind of controls put on this wave of illegal immigration that we're seeing here in the UK. It doesn't mean that they're not tolerant. It doesn't mean that Britain isn't a place where migrants have been welcomed over many generations. It's just it's just the pace and the illegality of it that raises their heckles, not least of Britain's existing immigrant community. Some of the most outspoken concerns I've heard about this have been from friends of mine who are or Asian or Cypriot or West Indian, first, second generation immigrants whose families did go through the legal rigmarole, who did go through the loopholes, who did keep their immigration story legal and above board. And there's a lot of discontent from those people. And I think Rishi Sunak, Swala Braverman, they're getting a lot of pushback, not just from the laws, but also from the commons, including from some parts of the Conservative Party. But I do think they're going to carry on with this until it reaches its logical conclusion, even if we end up in the courts again. But it's so watered down, Liam. I mean, what we're talking about is we've got a liberal elite in Westminster, and by that I mean all parties, who basically would rather stick up for the well-being of foreign strangers than for their own fellow countrymen. I cannot tell you how outraged I am. We've had some 1,339 migrants crossed in the first three days of this week alone. That's by the end of the week, it'll be two and a half thousand also needing places to stay. The idea that the Prime Minister saying his plan to stop the boats was starting to work is ludicrous. And as you say, we've had the House of Lords doing its damnedest to block the illegal migration bill. And when it voted on the version of the bill, which is being sent back to the Commons now, it included no fewer than 20 amendments. And that is believed to be a record. So the government has already basically given in on certain things like 10,000 migrants who've arrived since March will no longer be subject to the strict new measures of immediate deportation because the government has agreed to drop retrospective application of the legislation. And then they come on to the subject of unaccompanied children. They were going to limit the detention of unaccompanied children to eight days. The House of Lords voted for a 24-hour limit. What are these virtuous fools thinking of? We've had Alp Mehmet from Migration Watch on here in the year to September 2021 of the concluded cases, two in three of migrants who claim to be children were found to be adults. This is a huge safeguarding issue, Liam, for the young people 
of this country, but the welfare of school children here doesn't seem to figure in the thinking of these people who want to virtue signal on a grand scale. And I would just add that the thing that really took my breath away this week was it was revealed that in addition to the six million a day that this country is spending on accommodation for illegal migrants in hotels, the ministers are also spending more than half a million pounds every day on keeping 5,000 hotel beds empty, reserved for migrants as a buffer to prevent overcrowding at processing centres. What a calamitous waste of taxpayers' money. As far as I'm concerned, we are in the middle of a national emergency with illegal migration. I think it's clear that our government and border force have no control whatsoever over the numbers crossing the channel. And I think this could have massive repercussions. What we're seeing in Llanelli now If that catches fire around the country, we could see mass resentment and protests and the government will be to blame. And not just the government, everybody in the Palace of Westminster who is opposing sensible measures to try and get this dreadful problem under control. It is, of course, one of Rishi Sunak's five key pledges that he made uh, back in January that he would hit by the end of the year. I think the pledge was actually legislation to tackle small boats rather than tackling small boats. So a little bit of wiggle room there. Another pledge is to halve inflation. We'll see how that goes. And another pledge was to return to economic growth. And on that subject, Alison, we heard from Liz Truss, a former prime minister this week. She's got together this 12-strong growth commission, a dozen economists from the UK, the US. Are you in it, co-pilot? No, I'm not actually in it oh. as an Ofcom regulated broadcaster. I can't, and I, I wouldn't be in panels and commissions like this. But I was asked to uh, chair the press conference, which happened on Wednesday, the day after Planet Normal is released mm. in, in Westminster. And while it was presented as a sort of scientific thing, it was myself and four nerdy economists mm. up on stage talking literally about growth assumptions and stochastic modelling and all the rest of it. Liz Truss was in the audience, of course. Pretty Patel was in the audience. David Frost was in the audience. Many highly experienced political insiders. And this won't go down well with Rishi Sunak because what Liz Truss is basically saying here, and she's assembled a pretty impressive group of economists, mm. I must say. I mean, these include, you've got Shankar Singham, who's one of the world's leading trade experts, has worked for secretaries of state here in the UK and indeed in the US for senior policy advisors. She's got Doug McWilliams, who used to be the chief economist at the CBI, at IBM. From the state, she's got members of the Council of Economic Advisors, the main body of of White House economists, and some distinguished names from, from, from India, from Mexico, some Japanese economists. So this isn't just a kind of group of, of random people. These are highly distinguished, policy-savvy economists from around the world who've been involved in advising governments at the highest level. And they're trying to get back on the map this idea that maybe if we have you know, some tax cuts, if we have some supply side reforms, if we free up financial markets, if we try and engender more competition, that is the way to economic growth, not just borrowing and spending more money. And a lot of people will say, 
and I put this question to her when I interviewed her after the launch of, of the Growth Commission, a lot of people will say, well, didn't you wreck the economy, Liz Truss, mm. with Quasi Quateng? Why should we listen to you? Yeah. But guess what? A lot of fair-minded people in financial markets, in economics, you're not going to hear this from the Labour Party or even from big parts of the Tory party at Westminster, but a lot of people are looking at financial markets now and saying, hang on a minute, when Liz Truss and Quasi Quateng did their mini-budget, the government borrowing costs went to a certain level. It's about 4.5%. Well, they're now about 55 getting on for 6%. So even though we've got the sensible people in charge, you know, Jeremy Hunt and, and Rishi Sunak seem very much a sort of goody two-shoes by the Treasury and the policy establishment, the fiscal situation is actually worse. Government debt has massively expanded. Government debt service costs have massively expanded since that Liz Truss quasi quoting mini-budget. So... Was it all really their fault? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that she, at the announcement that she had been overheard comparing the sluggish growth in the UK to a boiling frog situation, saying it had hardly gone away with her exit from Downing Street and was in fact getting worse and worse. And I just wanted to mention your very, very good economics agenda column this week, which made for some pretty scary reading, Liam. And if I can quote you, you said... We're in a situation now that almost no one expected with inflation still high, borrowing costs soaring, our public finances under increasing pressure. And over the last week, financial markets have signaled that the UK's inflation problem will persist for some time. And the seemingly relentless rise in borrowing costs still has a long way to go. And another very alarming figure was that nearly one million households will see a rise of about £500 a month in their mortgages. So this is going to be absolutely dreadful. And you said that unless the UK escapes today's low growth, high spending, high tax trap, we're heading for a major economic crisis. That's a blast from the co-pilot, isn't it? Is it that bad, do you think? Well, I do think that financial markets are testing the UK government now. They are forcing them to pay more and more to borrow. It's not because they think we're going to default. It's because they think that the UK is going to have high inflation. And if you lend pounds now and you think there's going to be lots of inflation, you're going to charge a higher rate of interest, aren't you? Because you don't want your pounds to be inflated away. So you need high interest charges to compensate for that inflation. But here's the thing, Alison, because just as the Bank of England was very, very late to, to recognise inflation, very, very late to start raising interest rates, it's now, and I've been writing this for a couple of months, late to stop raising interest rates. Mm. I actually think if you look at what we call the money supply numbers, the size of the Bank of England's balance sheet, bank lending, those numbers are now contracting, which points to a significant slowdown in economic growth and a significant fall in prices coming down the track. China is now in what we call deflation. China inflation has just gone negative. Produ the producer price index, which you and I have discussed mm. over recent months, I've been saying when the producer price index is ahead of headline retail prices, you know inflation is going to keep going up because they're the supply chain price pressures. When firms are paying more for their inputs, they will eventually pass those costs on. Well, the producer price indices across the Western world have absolutely collapsed in the last month or two. It's barely been noticed. Even in the UK, the producer price index is down at 3 or 4% inflation in the supply chain. 
So I do actually think the Bank of England should stop raising interest rates now. It should have stopped a few months ago. These interest rate rises take months and months and months to feed through and actually have any impact. We've already done 13 interest rate rises. Mm. And the danger now is that the Bank of England, because it's lost so much face, because it has been so late, because it is under so much pressure, because everybody's so sick of inflation, will now keep going with you know half point interest rate rises from 5% now, maybe to 5.5% on August the 3rd, maybe another big jump up to 6% when it meets in September. I would absolutely argue against that. We've already got lots of interest rate rises in the tank. Let them take effect. Let them have their impact. Because over the next couple of months, you are going to see headline inflation falling. That, for me, is nailed on. You can see it in the money supply figures. The very money supply figures, which the Bank of England should be focused on really with real determination. And yet the Bank of England, on its monetary policy committee, it's got very few what we call monetarists, people who emphasise this link between money creation, quantitative easing and inflation. That school of economic thought, which very much came to the fore in the 1980s and was proved right again and again, has been almost airbrushed out of existence by the Treasury, by the Bank of England. That's why we need more cognitive diversity on the Bank of England. We need fewer people appointed just because they're nice and they're the right kind of person. We need some intellectual firebrands on the Monetary Policy Committee, people of massive authority who maybe don't have consensus opinions, but have very good reasons why they don't have consensus opinions. The kind of people who are warning in 2020 and into early 2021 that inflation is coming and now is the time to start raising interest rates. Those of us who are doing that, Alison, we were derided. We were treated as pariahs and nutters. Everywhere we look, Liam, there are just people who are not doing their jobs properly. I do think we should be fair to the Bank of England because they've got a lot of a lot of things on their hands looking after all the pregnant men, haven't they, in Threadneedle Street? That's, <laughs> that's, that's a full-time job. They've got a huge task, Alison, telling everybody how they were going to install heat pumps in their sort of historic <laughs> building in the city of London. I'm sure Andrew Bailey's going to be there. He's going to be going down to B&Q, buying himself an adjustable spanner and some of those... <laughs> rubber gloves and maybe even a baseball cap to keep his hair out of his eyes. <laughs> Why are we laughing? It's all so terrible, isn't it? Never, never mind. Come to Planet Normal, we can laugh through the darkness. In March, the Daily Telegraph broke a story. Former Health Secretary Matt Hancock has described the leaking of thousands of his WhatsApp messages. The Daily Telegraph says it's obtained thousands of WhatsApp messages. On the 100,000 leaked WhatsApp messages revealed. Some poor so-and-sos had to go through those. And now, those same poor so-and-sos are going deeper. The stunning incompetence of the British state was absolutely extraordinary. The Covid inquiry may be underway. They definitely knew what they were doing when they took them out of the hospitals into the care homes. But you shouldn't have to wait years for answers. You've got lockdown. There is no way that that isn't going to have a massive impact. If I had sit on that material to protect politicians' dark secrets, I don't think that would have been an honourable thing to do. The Lockdown Files podcast from The Telegraph. Follow now, wherever you're listening to this, to make sure you don't miss an episode.
Sharon Davis shot to national prominence as the 13-year-old who represented the UK swimming team at the 1976 Montreal Olympics. She went on to win multiple major titles, of course, including two Commonwealth golds, but she was famously deprived of gold at the 1980 Moscow Olympics, taking silver against an East German swimmer who, it was later admitted, benefited from the use of prohibited performance enhancers, including anabolic steroids. Since quitting top-level competitive swimming in the mid-90s, Davis has remained in the public eye as a TV commentator and presenter. In recent years, though, having herself been cheated of an Olympic gold, Davis has stood up for the rights of girls and women in competitive sports, stressing male biological advantage and calling for male-born trans women to be banned from female events. When she first appeared on Planet Normal in February 2021, Alison, Sharon Davis was enduring severe criticism from trans activists. Since then, though, the governing bodies of some sports, at least, have taken action to ensure women's events are indeed restricted to female-born competitors. As I welcomed her back, I started by asking Sharon Davis if she agreed that there was now more acceptance for her view that women's competitive sport should be restricted to biological women. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, a little bit. It's still quite difficult to get mainstream television in particular to give a sort of fair assessment. But I did do a piece the other day on Woman's Hour. You know, they gave me a good 15 minutes. They allowed me to actually present the facts and talk the science as well instead of just talk feelings all the time. And we are now beginning to allow females to have feelings in their own races where they're being shoved aside. You know, we already have such a small piece of the cake. Female athletes for decades have been fighting for parity. We don't have parity, but it's getting better. I mean, for example, there's a, a thousand women in the UK that earn their living from sport. There's 11,000 men. American primetime TV time, only 4% go to females and only 1% of the American sponsorship dollar. So that's 99% go to men and 1% of the dollar in America for sponsorship in sport goes to women. You know, it, it is, it's absolutely crazy that we have this tiny, tiny piece of the cake and we're already supposed to move over and say, oh, it's okay for, for those with a male biological advantage to also go into races and to beat women. And it's not okay. You know, we need to protect the female class for people that are biologically female. That's half of this world deserve to have fair sport. We are deserved of fair sport, just as males are deserved of fair sport. So we're now being allowed to present the facts with world aquatics and world swimming, that two of the biggest Olympic sports protecting the female classification. We're beginning to use the science, but it's still like pulling teeth. And in things like football, where there is biological you know, contact and possibility of female getting very badly injured, they're still dragging their feet. And I find that just almost criminal in a way that we're waiting for accidents to happen. I do want you to give us an update of which sports have moved in your direction, if you like. Because I do just want to paint a picture, Sharon Davis, of who you are for younger listeners. Of course, people like Alison and I, we grew up with you. There you were, 13 years old, going to Montreal, representing GB in the Olympics. Incredible feat. You were a huge figure and still are for our generation in terms of elite female athletes. The, the piece of your book that I found most moving was talking about those early times and, and how you felt towards the German female swimmers who were clearly cheating. Yeah, and I suppose that's the biggest motivation for me speaking out. You know, I was of that generation that raced East German athletes, young East German girls that were being given testosterone, steranabol, 
terribly horrible, nasty steroids, which put them through male puberty. So it gave these young girls male puberty. And then they dominated the world of swimming, rowing and track and field. For nearly 20 years, this was allowed to go on. And there were two victims, people like myself who lost medals. I had friends that came fourth behind three East Germans who no one's ever heard of. And their whole lives would have been different if they'd been Olympic champions, of course. And then, of course, there were these German girls, you know, that were huge victims as well. Many of them have died. Most of them have got serious health issues. Many of them have got sterility problems. They've had disabled children. I mean, it's total national negligence by the IOC that they allowed this to happen for 20 years. And I just did not want, you know, this had to happen again. Different circumstances, same end result. Male puberty was going to rob female athletes that should win medals and titles and positions on teams and scholarships in America now that would be taken by people that were biologically male and had an unfair advantage. And I wasn't just going to sit by and let it happen to a a whole other generation. I just felt even if I can stop it for a few years, even if I can shorten that so that less women lose out, then it's got to be worth sticking my head above the parapet. And I suppose I was in that lucky position where I wasn't signing a contract with a governing body. I didn't have a sponsorship deal with a you know a major clothing company that could turn around and say that you've got to stay quiet. And I must admit, I didn't think Liam I would get such the hit that I did. You know, I, I really didn't. But I'm not regretful that I'd that I've done it and I would do it again. Your book reminded me just how dominant those East German doped athletes were. East Germany's female swimmers, they won 98 of 102 gold medals awarded to women at European Championships for swimming between 1974 and 1989. And they came from nowhere, didn't they? It's not like there was a sort of generational ramp up to this kind of performance. It was from nowhere. I mean, they would arrive at a major championship. We'd never seen them before and they'd break a world record. It was literally just insane. And everybody knew and nobody did anything. And my dad used to speak out. And my dad was then never picked as an international coach because he spoke out. It was just a ridiculous state of affairs that this went on and on and on for, you know, all these big championships. And people lost out hugely. But what's crazy, Liam, is the situation now is even worse. Because that was just one country, East Germany, concentrating on major internationals like the Europeans, the Worlds and the Olympics, obviously, in swimming and in rowing and in track and field. Now we have it everywhere across every country at every level. And it's even happening in primary schools. I mean, I get calls every week at the moment, because that's the time of the year, obviously the summer, from distraught parents saying that their little girls just come back from their school sports day. The school decided to have mixed races because therefore then there was no controversy and it was wonderfully PC and not a single little girl won a race all day on sports day. So what message are we giving our girls at the moment that they're just not worthy? It's catastrophic. I mean, it really is. It's hard to get your head around what we're doing right now. The table that really struck me in your book, and and I've taken a photo of it and sent it to various friends, is the table on a page 112 of how 15-year-old boys around the world, hundreds of them, thousands of them each year, across all kinds of sports, all kinds of events, beat the best women who have ever been. By the age of 15 or 16, boys who will not become international athletes or even make their living from athletics are routinely posting times across a range of sports that will blow any woman in history out the water, which just goes to prove the point about biological sex. Exactly. That's exactly what male puberty does. So at the age of 14 in America, there are American schoolboys who will be all of the women in America, the very best track and field athletes in America, who are some of the best track and field athletes in the world, 14-year-old boys. 
You know, my son's 16 year old, you know, rugby player, you know, with a deep voice and grunting like 16 year olds do. And, and that's what puberty does. You know, once it, someone has gone through male puberty, it's like boiling an egg. You cannot reverse it. Those advantages are there. And also things like Q angle, which is the angle that comes from your hip to your knee, you know, that's never going to be changed by suppressing testosterone. And there was never any evidence that suppressing testosterone did anything. You know, the difference, like in football, for example, girls and women get six times as many knee injuries because of this angle is greater from hips to knees, you know, and and then the power that you can put through on things like your stride on the track or in cycling because of that angle is that much better because you're male again none of these things can be removed by reducing testosterone and and suggesting that some advantage is okay is a bit like saying well well, let's not bother having the world anti-doping agency for females we're not going to bother with any any testing because we don't care that it's unfair so what's the point of having WADA the world anti-doping agency if we acknowledge that women are expected to compete with a known disadvantage before they even start the race. I mean, none of it makes any sense. You have got lots and lots of incredible statistics in this book, not least about that key point of the importance of biological sex. It seems to me you've also got the support from some really incredible people. Daley Thompson's on the back of the book, obviously Olympic decathlon gold medalist in 80 and 84, a British track and field legend, Martina Navratilova, incredible tennis player of course is very much in your corner did you feel lonely when you first started speaking out do you still feel lonely Sharon I'm frustrated that when you speak to athletes and coaches and even people that run governing bodies that so few of them are verbal about how they feel so if we can get uh, anonymous polling, which is what we've been trying to get the governing bodies to do, then we know that we get genuine responses. And those are always in the 90s, you know, 90% regularly. In fact, often, you know, if you're just polling the women, it's even higher. But most people in sport understand how sport works and they want to see fair sport. It's the intimidation which is stopping people from being able to lift their head above the parapet. So in the book, I mentioned this letter that went to the IOC and I got 60 of my friends in the world of international sport, all household names, all huge champions, you know, to write a letter and say, please, IOC, do the science first before you change the rules. You know, don't just use women's sport as an experiment, which happened before. But of those 60, only five have ever put their head above the parapet. And even some of them that did, did it in the early days and then have not spoken about it again because, it, you know, straight away there was a response onto onto their work. And so they just stopped talking about it. So it's this intimidation which has stopped us being able to have honest debate. Tell me what form that intimidation takes, Sharon Davis. You don't seem to me to be the kind of person who backs down in the face of intimidation. You're obviously a supremely determined person. What is it about you, do you think, that's meant that you have put your head above the parapet and become this kind of icon of defiance on this point, while so many other equally world-class athletes with similar resolve have decided not to? There's organizations around the world, though. You know, there's a very big organization in America. And we've had Riley Gaines, who was racing Leah Thomas, come out. She's been very brave. Uh, we've had Amelia, you know, track and field athlete in this country that's spoken out. So there has been more, you know, a few more people speaking out. And obviously, when you have something like World Athletics and Seb say, no, we must protect the female category, that gives people the courage, yeah, to be a little bit more vocal. So I think it has been getting better. But what is very noticeable is that women get attacked so much more than men. So you can't help but feel at times that this whole movement is very misogynistic. It's literally like giving 
not very nice men the opportunity to beat women around the head. You know, it's given them this tool to be vile. And so if Daly says the same thing as me, Daly will get, you know, a hundredth of the abuse that I will get. It feels like a misogynistic movement. It feels like an attack on women's rights at the moment. And have you ever felt physically threatened? Have you ever feared for your safety, Sharon? Not really. I mean, I I think I try to avoid putting myself to what might be a risky situation and try to be sort of sensible. I tend to think a lot of them are quite cowardly. You know, they sit behind a keyboard and are vile. And if you had to actually confront you face to face, you know, in a group of people, they would be much less vocal. But it is this constant thing and also they do things like you know they ring up your employers they ring up the media stations they ring up your charities they ring up you know anyone that you've done anything for and then they just badger them and you did lose work didn't you you have lost work loads of work over this yeah absolutely I mean the only reason I've been able to keep going is sadly my mum passed away a few years ago you know along with my brother she left me her house and so that money has enabled me to pay my bills and that's it But I I often think if my mum was watching, she'd be very proud because I always remember her saying to me that when she bought her first house with my dad, the money for the deposit was came from her granddad. So it came came from my granddad, came from her dad, you know, so and that money went on the property and my mum wasn't even allowed to be on the mortgage. You know, and I think it's a bit of a generational thing. I think the young people of today don't realise how women have had to fight for their rights. They don't realise what they're giving away. Just give us a, a brief update, Sharon, of where we are on the various major sports when it comes to this debate, your own sport of swimming, athletics, and so on? Yeah, so world cycling, probably one of the worst offenders. Again, a very misogynistic, historically, you know, organisation. There's 50 trans-identifying males at the moment in women's sport in North America, just mopping up. In football in this country, there's 50 trans-identifying males playing women's football, many of them goalkeepers, because that's where the advantage is huge, because you're explosive and you're tall and big hands. So, you know, I'd love to see the FA stand up. Rugby has stood up, certainly on the grounds of safety, world athletics, world athletics, as you've said. We'd like to see world cycling soon. British cycling have, but it was again like pulling teeth. British rowing hasn't, but they're talking about it. So hopefully that will be soon. World rowing again are talking about it. They've put a sort of an extra clause in at the moment to sort of protect. But here's one of the crazy things that world rowing did. You'll know this because as you said, it's your sport. But world rowing turned around and said, okay, trans identifying males can go into the women's category. But when it's a mixed race, i.e. men and women, those women have to be biological women. So when it affected men's sport, you know, I mean, how insane is that, right? It's the worst possible position to take. It's just completely mad. Yeah. There's so many different things happening everywhere. I mean, really what should happen is the IOC should come out and just protect the female class, but they won't. You know, they never have done throughout the whole of history, done the right thing by women's sport. In the book, I've tried very hard to persuade Mr. Macron not to celebrate Baron Pierre Coubertin because he did everything in his power to keep women out of the Olympics. That's right. They want to make a they want to make a big deal of the founding father, if you like, of the modern Olympics at the Paris Olympics, don't they? You know, that was pointed out in the book, wasn't it? Because the book was all about the battles. You know, it just shows that we've had one battle after the next battle after the next battle. And this is the latest one. We do need to get to a place where the athletes have a voice and we don't have that. Many Planet Normal listeners will be rooting for you. They will have watched you in admiration, Sharon. Many of us, of course, having watched you as you were coming through the ranks as a British swimmer what's next for you and do you feel that you are getting a bit more of a look in now in terms of the appearances the television work from which you make the vast majority of your your living is it getting better for you Sharon 
A little bit better, definitely a little bit better. Though, you know, this year, for, for the first year in 30 years, the BBC are not covering the World Swimming Championships. You know, we talk about women's sport getting better profile, but in fact, it's really not. You know, women's team sports, maybe, rugby, cricket, football. Cricket's another one that, that doesn't support their female athletes. At the moment, all you have to do to play cricket on a women's team is to self-identify. And again, you know, another sport that I would say is quite misogynistic because the women's team have never even played a test on Lords so far. So I think it's a little bit better because I think that we are, it's going in the right direction, slower than I would like to see, but hopefully in time for, you know, a lot of sports to be saved for, for women at the Paris Olympics next year. But where we've got a battle at the moment is things like parkrun. So with parkrun, it's just self-identification. So women are losing course records all over the country every single weekend at the moment by males that are self-identifying into their classification. And what I can't understand is why can't parkrun just add some classifications? Why can't we have a, a course record for a transgender woman or a course record for a transgender man? You know, why can't there just be some extra boxes? It's the easiest thing in the world to do. And again, things like the school sports, you know, that worries me. It worries me what we're doing to young kids. It worries me terribly what we're doing to young girls at the moment. We've got a massive explosion in mental health issues for young girls, and this is not going to help them. Well, Sharon, you've done a fantastic job. It's a great read, Unfair Play, by Sharon Davis, The Battle for Women's Sports, written with the sports journalist Craig Lord. Great to have you back on Planet Normal. Thank you. And thank you for all your support as well. You know, the book was done to arm people, to give them something solid that they can go in and battle for their girls for using that information. So hopefully it's helpful. Sharon Davis, a campaigner extraordinaire, swimming legend. Thanks for being on Planet Normal. I have to say, Alison, I'm a huge fan of mm. Sharon Davis. It's a fabulous book. Yeah. Uh, I read it in one sitting, Unfair Play, The Battle for Women's Sport, co-authored with the distinguished journalist Craig Lord is out now. It's one of those books, as I was reading it, and Sharon and Craig were wielding statistics deftly. There was fantastic narrative. There was very moving stuff about how, as a young swimmer, Sharon Davis and other members of the British team, even though they knew they were up against women who were being doped, they had this massive unfair advantage. They'd still bring for their female competitors from East Germany, from the Soviet Union. They'd bring to international meets eyeliner, tights, you know, other things that they felt these women couldn't get behind mm. the Iron Curtain in a kind of display of female solidarity. I mean, how must it feel to train five hours a day, mm. seven days a week, to go to the Olympics and get beaten and you know it's unfair and yet no one says anything? And your own dad, who was her coach, was prevented from yeah. coming to a lot of international meets because he would speak out. Yeah. And yet the IOC, the British Olympic authorities, they would not speak out against this blatant doping and cheating. It's uncanny, Liam, isn't it, how that did prefigure the doping of the East German and, and Soviet women, did prefigure what's happening now with the same reluctance for people to speak out. I mean, obviously, Sharon was talking about the grotesque unfairness at the sort of cycling and the sort of professional and semi-professional level but what jumped out at me as a parent was you know these school sports days where girls aren't allowed to have their own events now so oh. they're all mixed events and you you know some schools no girl wins anything I mean you know how's that going to make promising young female athletes feel I really liked your phrase Liam I like you calling Sharon Davis an icon of defiance I think she is I think it's a sign of the times actually I was doing something the other day and someone said you're brave for writing this and 
you know, I don't want to be called brave. These are self-evident. These, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that women are created women. You shouldn't be, have to be courageous for saying it. But people are so terrorized. We, we talked last week, didn't we, about the sort of the, the Stonewall Mafia setting the agenda and penalizing everyone who doesn't fall in with their creed. And Sharon said, it feels like a misogynistic movement, an attack on women's rights. And I'm afraid I'm coming round to that view now. I don't think it's just a handful of people who are confused about their gender or sexuality. It does now feel like a horrible attack on women. And I did write this week, Liam, about the Miss Netherlands competition, which was won by a trans woman. And all I've got to say about that co-pilot is that when I was growing up, men with the best sportsmen and the best business people and the best lawyers and the best medics, but at least we felt we were the best women. But now a man can be the best woman. How about that? Alison, all I can say in response to what you've just said is bonus hole. Uh, oh, God. Just the listeners who haven't heard about this atrocity we learned this week about the disgusting term bonus holes, which is what Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust seriously suggests as an alternative to vagina to avoid upsetting women who identify as men or quite possibly the other way around. So, ladies, the most intimate part of our anatomy now sounds like something you find on a putting green. Before we go on to... Our listener emails, let me just read. We've had a, an email in from the picket line outside the Tlanethi Stradipart Hotel saying, this is all alleged, Liam, that the owners have had a drone delivered from Amazon and they were using it last night to film us. They're hoping the police will arrest us so we'll be moved away. It's not going to work. We've been told by several sources that if the asylum seekers don't get in by Friday to the hotel, then they'll give up and have to go somewhere else. So I'm sending all Cumbriambis to the picket line in Llanelli. Now, on to our listener emails, the messages you send to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We really love to read them. We've had some fantastic feedback on the last few weeks. This is a reaction, Liam, to the male Miss Netherlands. Ellen says, as a once tolerant, each to their own sort of person, I now find myself consumed with anger at the arrogance and misogyny of despicable people who are determined to erase women in our language from all aspects of society. The recent pictures of a trans woman chest feeding a baby actually made me feel sick. A trans woman's body is already full of poisons from medication, and yet he chose to ingest even more chemicals and put his own desire to perfect his performance above any risk to that baby. To my knowledge, breastfeeding mothers are encouraged to protect the baby from any unnecessary medicines or substances that can potentially reach her milk. The idea that trans women are being encouraged to indulge in this pantomime is surely a child safeguarding issue. But who cares about babies and the welfare of children in a world where trans demands trump all? And Paul says, I keep waiting for the shift in actual power away from woke, but there's no one left with any courage in Parliament and the legal loops get pulled ever tighter around us. Big corporates and elites pulling the strings via the capture of just about every organ of society. Right, here's one, Alison, because we've got a new poet in our midst. Ah. We have, of course, Bob, 
But now we have Lucia or Lucia. She sent us an email poem from an Essex girl. And here it is. You asked for more ladies to send you an email. So back in your box, Bob. I promise I'm female. (laughs) (laughs) What a waste was the lockdown and economy in tatters. Politicians and experts thought we didn't matter. Through lockdowns unceasing, planet normal was there. Hooray! It was only on Thursdays the weather was fair. We watched as our children were ignored in their prime. They should have been learning. No school was a crime. GPs are still absent. Their surgery's locked. Hospitals not coping. The whole system's blocked. The guests on the rocket kept my brain thinking straight. Many wise words were said. Not the BBC slate. With Liam in the cockpit and Pearson beside, we knew we were safe from groupthink and pride. Our dogs now love Thursdays, a walk with the pod. We listen to reason and agree, think and nod. What a waste of a government, majority no less, for all that is left is no money and stress. So thank you, Planet Normal, for keeping us sane. We promise we'll listen again and again. A fantastic poem there from Lucia or Lucia. I hope I got that right. Absolutely brilliant. This is from Dr. Claire, the Planet Normal GP. For the first time, I completely disagreed with the Planet Normal interviewee. How can Roy Lilly say the NHS is underfunded? It isn't. It's grossly mismanaged. How can he say the law requires we have 800 diversity officers? Rubbish. I'm afraid he represents the group think of current NHS managers who won't recognise the problems and have no idea how to fix them. Roy Lilly says the NHS needs to be a better employer. The reason I, as a GP and many colleagues, are frustrated and exhausted and considering leaving the health service is entirely because of appalling management and vast amounts of money being wasted on woke projects, diversity management and inefficiency instead of spent on nurses' wages and patient care. I was glad that you and Liam were pretty clear that you disagreed with Roy Lilly too. I can't tell you how terrible things are out here on the ground. After another week of battling to get basic tests and treatment for my patients, with poor people suffering and in pain, waiting months to get an appointment only to have it cancelled and deferred for several more months. And then it is just a phone call and the elderly cannot hear what's being said. This week, a cardiologist wrote to me and said, following a phone consultation, that he had told the patient to book an appointment with me for the examination that he couldn't carry out because it was a phone appointment. This is ridiculous. I am not a cardiologist and the patient was referred for his expert opinion. It's falling apart, Halligan, isn't it? It certainly is. And Planet Normal listeners can hear from Claire, our anonymous GP who works in the NHS and keeps us informed, one of many working frontline medical staff who talk to Alison and I here on Planet Normal. Claire appeared on Planet Normal, not her real name, of course, mm. on the 12th of November 2020, and then she appeared again on the 17th of November 2022. So if Planet Normal listeners want to hear more from Claire, then they can look up those previous episodes. Here's one from Louise. Dear Alison and Liam, you're absolutely right to call out the failing NHS on its 75th birthday. The gutless politicians we have at the time are a total disgrace on health and woke trans issues, never mind the economy. How has Stonewall managed to infiltrate our top institutions, asked Louise. Why are banks allowed to judge and discriminate against people's opinions on issues such as politics and sexual preference? 
If that's due to an EU law, overregulation is the reason why we left the EU. So let's scrap it. Taxpayers cannot continually bail out the NHS without reform and the input of the private sector. All the expensive procedures, medicines, etc. that are available now, wonderful though they are in saving lives, cost an absolute fortune. It's a no-brainer. If politicians had the guts to comprehensively put the case, surely the people will understand. Reiterating, of course, that the very poor will, of course, always be looked after. On trans issues, says Louise, biological men and women's spaces must be protected and another space given for others. All parties must state where they stand on this issue at the next election. Thank goodness for you both expressing common sense views. So wonderful to escape to planet normal, away from planet disaster. Best wishes, Louise. And I'd say, Alison, those views expressed there by Louise, I think she absolutely encapsulates what the majority of British people think, the silent majority. She's a tolerant person. She wants free at the point of use healthcare. She wants, of course, absolutely the very poorest to be looked after. But she wants an NHS that's more efficient, where we get more bang for our taxpayer buck, where we can have, what is the point of free at the point of use if you can't even see your GP and you can't access the healthcare in time to save your life, which I'm afraid has happened in certain cases, as is now clear. So well done, Louise. A fabulous email. And sort of on the same subject of the NHS, Keith says, according to what I read in the Telegraph, Amanda Pritchard was at Wimbledon in the Royal Box. It's nice to know that in amongst dealing with the stresses and strains of running the NHS, the nurses strike, the junior doctors strike, the consultants strike and the worst maternity scandal ever, Amanda Pritchard has time to go to Wimbledon. And this from a comment online about us, Liam, this is from someone referring to themselves as the UK used to be okay. When are the progressives going to start referring to men's anatomy as a bonus poll? Or is it only women who have to suffer having their bodies ridiculed? Well, I shall be slipping bonus poll into my next column. Thanks so much for that. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week is my turn. And let's give it to Lucia. Lucia, I'm sorry I can't pronounce your name correctly. Poem from an Essex girl. Well done. You tackled back in your box, Bob. And you promised that you're female and that's fine with us. So email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put mug winner in the subject heading of the email and give us your postal address and we'll send you a Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There are lots of lovely reviews. You can go and add yours to one of those, please. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our fabulous producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>